Thank you for coming today. Uh, my name is Eric, and I am the priest associate for formation here at St. Michael, and our rector and many of our clergy and staff are either already in San Antonio or on their way to San Antonio right now for the Consortium of Endowed Episcopal Parishes. You can come in. You're fine. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my role here at St. Michael's is to help oversee our formation offerings, Sunday school, uh, special programs. We've got a, a Lent speaker this Saturday. Please sign up if you haven't already. We've already got about 50 people coming. Should be great. Um, but oftentimes, if you see me, it means someone else isn't here. So, for instance, two Sundays ago, I was Bob Johnson. Last Sunday, I was Bill Murray. Today, I'm Chris Carrada. I think on Sunday, I'm Eric, but I'm going to have a sort of crisis of, of uh, sort of personality in, in a few months. Anyway, no, it's my great pleasure. Chris, uh, it's such an honor to be with you all, and I applaud your effort to read through the Gospel of Luke, which just so happens to coincide with what our presiding bishop has asked us to do during the season of Lent. And I am understanding that you all have completed Luke chapter 15. I see some nods. And today we're going to cover Luke chapter 16. Are there some other nods? All right. Now, uh, I propose we're going to do this in three sections. And um, you're going to hear uh, some from me. Does Chris normally read the... Not at all. Do, do you all read it out loud while you're here? You've already read it. Fantastic. Well, we're going to do this in three sections. And I, let me just say at the start, I'm going to pray in just a minute. Um, well, let me pray and then, then I'll uh, say what I need to say. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious God, thank you so much for the opportunity to spend some time with you and your love letter to us today in the Gospel of Luke and in chapter 16. Please open our minds and our hearts. Guide us with your Holy Spirit that we might receive the information that you want us to. And more importantly, Lord, that you would draw us ever closer to you and to one another. Uh, we pray for our brothers and sisters who are traveling today, for those who are on their way to join us here, and for those who are not able to be here for illness. We pray your healing and peaceful hand be on each of those this day. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, Luke's my favorite. I hope you know that already. Uh, if you're reading our Lenten devotionals, I think I mentioned that a little bit. And N.T. Wright is my least favorite. So, those of you who are reading the guidebook, I'm just going to tell you up front. Um, I happen to study in my doctorate with uh, a scholar, a New Testament scholar, who really, really dislikes N.T. Wright. I don't really, really dislike him. I just think his um, interpretation um, is off a little bit. So, Chris sent me N.T. Wright's note for Luke 16. Some of you all are reading that as a guide. Yeah, I'm honest. I'm going to tell you the truth. It's okay. If you all love N.T. Wright, God bless you. It's fantastic. I'm going to point out a few things where I think um, his interpretation makes it harder for us to understand what Jesus is talking about, um, I think. So it's not lost on me that Luke 16, I think, is the heart. I already lost one. She's walking out. See? <laughs> Said something bad about N.T. Wright, and there she goes. It's okay. If I only lose one, then I'm as good as Jesus. <laughs> Terrible joke, but thank you for laughing. I used to say when I was a youth minister, Jesus had 12 disciples and he lost one, and I'm just not that good. So, um, anyway. 
Luke 16 is uh, a continuation of uh, a dialogue that Luke is, uh, that Jesus is having with his disciples about money and wealth um, and how to be in right relationship with one another, right? Luke 15 is the great chapter of where everything gets lost and found, right? The coin, uh, the prodigal son, um, all those things are really fantastic happening in um, Luke chapter 15. Remember when you all talked about the prodigal son um, that... Uh, we have these different characters, and they have a different um, relationship with money, right? The, lower, the, the younger son wants the wealth, and then he squanders it, right? But then he's welcomed back, right? There's this uh, distribution of wealth that he kind of does, and we're going to see some of that in Luke 16. So we start with this parable of the shrewd manager. Now, Chris told me this was most of the lecture, but I would love if you all have thoughts or comments or questions anytime, just raise your hand and, and I'll repeat it. I think this is being recorded, which makes me extremely nervous, but that's okay. Um, so if you all have any, any thoughts or questions or comments just as we begin, let's start there. Thoughts, questions, or comments about Luke 15 or where we're about to head today. It's okay if you don't, but if you do, it's okay. Can raise your hand. Yes, Carol. So Carol's asking about the prodigal son when he comes back. Did he repent? I, I think he did have a moment of repentance. Um, remember when he's away, he remembers that the servants in his father's house are treated better than he is. He's eating like he's um, longing for the pig slop, more or less. And when he comes back, he says, I have sinned against heaven and against you. So there is that moment uh, where the younger son admits uh, that he's done wrong by his father. Um, and by the law, um, and his father um, really brushes it aside really quickly because uh, the restoration of the family is the most important thing, right? Um, it's going to be an interesting question today as we think about in the season of Lent and repentance um, and turning away from those things which keep us from God, right relationship with God and our neighbor as we look at these couple of parables. Any other questions or comments as we get ready to dive into Luke 16? All right, so everybody's read it. All right, most of you've read it. Uh, bless you. That's awesome. So the first parable is this parable of the shrewd manager. This one is, is fascinating. Um, I think we can, we can engage in this one in, in some interesting ways. So we've got uh, a manager who hears uh, a master, a rich man, very, very rich man, um, who hears word that his steward is mismanaging his funds, right? Um, your, you found out that your uh, Charles Schwab advisor is not making the best decisions for your portfolio. Maybe that works. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Um, and so you call him to task on it. You know what? This isn't working. You're not doing a good job for me. So I want you to go ahead and hand over the books, and you are going to no longer be under my employee. And this steward, this manager says, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Uh, this is the only job I'm good at. It's the only job I've ever had. I can't work on a, with, you know, manual labor. Um, I'm, not gonna, I'm not really cut out for begging. And so what can I do to ensure that when I don't have this job anymore, when I hand these books over, um, that I'm personally going to be okay? And so he, he calls some of the people who owe his master some debt. And this is where it gets a little confusing because there's lots of different ways to interpret this. But let's just get through the just of the story. And he cuts their debt, right? You owe 50 jugs of olive oil. Sit down quickly, make it 50. You owe 100 uh, bushels of wheat. Sit down quickly, make it 80. And then he goes to give the books to his, the, the rich man, his master. And he's applauded for his shrewd business practices. And um, then we hear some uh, bit from Jesus about that. 
Um, The children of this age are more shrewd than the children of the age of light. We're going to need to unpack that. And I tell you, this is where it gets really weird, make friends for yourself by the means of dishonest wealth so that when it's gone, they'll welcome you into the eternal homes. Well, I don't know, right? So remember that Jesus is talking to his disciples, but the Pharisees are also listening. And the Pharisees are a group of people who are very much concerned with money and property um, and being influential in the society. Jesus' disciples mostly are poor, right? They're fishermen from Galilee. Um, and so Jesus is teaching them in parable form. And anytime Jesus is teaching a parable, we need to pay attention to lots of things that are happening. So remember who the audience is. And what's happening in this parable, let's unpack this story first, and then we'll, we'll look at a little bit about what Jesus is, is saying about it, is that um, this person, you know, the steward, um, who has been accused of anything, we don't know if he actually, uh, the manager, if he was actually mismanaging the funds or not. He's just accused of it. And so he's going to get fired. So we can relate to that in our life, right? Anytime someone gets accused of doing something wrong in an employment, they might lose their job. It happens. And so because he knows he's about to lose his job, he he makes some decisions in order to um, set himself up in the future, right? And so who is pleased with him for doing this? The people who owe the debt? And the manager himself is pleased because the manager or the, the, the wealthy man, the rich man, looks compassionate. He's relieved the debt of, you know, some of what people owe him. But there's a lot of uh, unknowns about this parable. One is, is the portion of the debt that is discarded um, interest. Now, in first century uh, Israel, it was illegal against the law um, of God to loan with interest, right? Usury is what that's called. So if the wealthy man was making money by loaning, not money, but oil or wheat, that's how you get around it, right? We, we know about those kinds of things. Um, and then charging interest on it. If the manager is slashing the interest, then there may be a comment in there about him trying to call the rich man on, t- on task of violating the Torah, violating the law. Or it could be that the portions that he cut are the portions he would have gotten himself, right, for working, you know, it's the Levi, the tax collector, you know, um, I have to collect what I need for Rome, but I'm going to collect a little bit extra so that I can live. And then when Levi has his conversion, he says, I'm going to give everything back if I've, if I've made any dishonest gain, right? That's also in Luke's gospel. Um, that's Zacchaeus. You should correct me when I'm wrong. That's Zacchaeus in the tree, right? Um, Levi is a tax collector, but so is Zacchaeus. And that's Zacchaeus where that happens. So it could be that, or it just could be um, these guys have owed the rich man this debt for a long time, and maybe they couldn't pay it. I don't have 100 jugs of olive oil to pay you back, but I happen to have 50, and so if I give it to you real quick, if we have this exchange, then the wealthy man feels like he's gaining some of the debt maybe he was never going to get back. You know, Sometimes we uh, give a break, a jubilee, uh, we reduce the debt that other countries owe us in order, so they can pay us back, right? And, and it's a win-win also. And so there's a couple of different ways that we can interpret this, passion, uh, this first parable of the shrewd manager. Um, and Jesus kind of talks about it at the end. Any comments or questions about those kind of three different ways to look at the debt and how it was cut? Okay. It's pretty, I think that part's pretty self-explanatory. I think the issue we run up into is when Jesus tells us to, or his disciples to make friends by means of dishonest wealth. 
the heck does that mean? Anybody have any ideas or thoughts about that? Why should we make friends by dishonest wealth? Or how? Well, there's a, a distribution of wealth that's happening, right? That's a scattering of, of property. Um, what the dishonest manager is doing is uh, what happens in other places about sharing uh, the access you have to, to wealth or mammon. And um, he has uh, distributed what was owed to his master to the people who owed him. And that they, in turn, will then hopefully welcome him into their homes. Now, it talks about eternal homes here. Um, but I think it would be a mistake to interpret that as heaven, right? We're going to talk a little bit about heaven and, and Hades in these passages. Um, but there is a, there's a problem with uh, wealth being monopolized by one individual, by a small group of individuals. And this is a commentary on that in some ways. Um, and so uh, the Pharisees don't like this, by the way. They're like, this isn't, that's not how it should work. We like that, that system where we're in, in charge of everything. Um, but we see Jesus sort of encouraging this distribution of wealth. Does it make sense? Y'all with me? Everybody awake still? All right. Um, I want to make a comment about the children of this age and them being more shrewd than the children of light. The children of light is a, is a reference. Um, there are four types of Judaism in Jesus' time that are named in the Bible. Um, there's the Pharisees. They're no fair, you see. The Sadducees, they don't believe in the resurrection, so they're sad, you see, right? The Zealots, uh, Simon, uh, Zealot, one of the... Uh, disciples, one of the apostles, military, we're going to retake this whole thing over Rome, um, and the Essenes, um, Essianic Jews, not Messianic Jews, there's no M, just S, and they believe in ritual purity, right, and um, there's a lot of issues in Jerusalem where if you go back into the Hebrew Bible, um, high priests need to be from the tribe of Aaron, and then eventually they need to be from the tribe of Zadok, and there's a whole history there. Um, but the people who were the high priest in Israel during Jesus' time, they weren't even of the tribe of Levi. They are just people who were after power, who Rome could have a relationship with. And so we have people moving out of Jerusalem. Some of them moved to a community called Qumran. I think Essene Jews, there's some in Jerusalem. There's reference carrying water. Anytime you see somebody carrying water in Jerusalem, that's an Essene. But Qumran, a Dead Sea Scrolls, right? Some of you heard of it? That's great. Um, it should be like a third testament for us to read because we get so much insight about first century uh, Judaism um, and, and what's happening just before that. And very common in the writing of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the writings of the, the Essene community in Qumran are talking about the children of light versus the children of this age or the children of darkness. And so Jesus is making a comparison there to the people who um, not just follow the, the law, um, but those who are faithful to God, right? The Pharisees follow the law. I'm using quotation marks if you're listening. Um, but they're not really faithful to God. They're faithful to the law in a way that it can benefit them. Um, but do you all remember, go, go way back to Abraham. Abraham's going to come up in a minute. God promised Abraham that his descendants would number how many? Six. 
sands of the sea, stars in the heavens. Right? When you look at salvation history, God chooses a person, and then uh, well, God chooses all creation, and then a family, and then a person, and then eventually the 12 tribes, a nation, to be a light to the whole world, right? Uh, Israel uh, as a nation in biblical times kind of fails at welcoming those other people. Luke's very concerned with that, right? You all have seen it already. Luke, Luke's very concerned about women, about the poor, and about the Gentile. And uh, Israel's failure to um, share the good news of God before Jesus to those outside of the community of Israel, um, Jesus kind of lays that blame at the Pharisees. You're keeping this all internal. This is part of that distribution of wealth, right? God's resources are abundant if we share them. But if we don't share them, uh, somebody needs to come and remind us. Because it's for everybody. It's for the whole world. God wants the whole world to be in relationship with them. Um, and so that's a little bit about what's going on here. And so the children of light are the, are the people who understand the good news of God. That it needs to be spread. Not just held within this small, narrow group. So there's a practical thing here, right? We might read this and say, well, if we are blessed with wealth or we're blessed with access to wealth, we ought to make friends by it. And that's sharing, and that's a good thing. It's using dishonest wealth for uh, personal gain, but it also is doing, I think, what God wants to happen. We see in the parable of the prodigal son is this distribution of money. Okay? The second section uh, from verse 10 through 18 uh, is a couple, and you can divide this a couple of different ways, uh, but I think N.T. Wright divided these in these three ways. Um, deals with a couple of things, and one is... Um, He's going to call it teachings on stewardship. And that's part of it. You all remember the parable of the talents? All right, I think you have to keep that in mind, right? Um, one person's given five and they double it. One person's given two and they double it. The other one who's given one buries it. You are a, a wicked master sowing where you did not weep. Oh, I'm wicked, am I? Well, take the one from that one and give it to the one who's got five. Right? There's this idea of, of using the gifts that were given um, to grow and increase them, again, not to hoard them. And that's, I think, related to this first part. Whoever is faithful in a little is faithful in much. How can, how can I give you what's yours if you're not faithful with what's not yours? That's the question that Jesus is sort of asking. And I think it has to do, um, again, with this. If you haven't been faithful with the dishonest wealth, however you want to understand that, like the uh, shrewd manager was, um, then who... Why, why should God trust you with the true riches? So this begins to get us into this concept of what are the true riches of God? Um, well, you can interpret that in a Christian perspective, um, but certainly uh, in, in the time of Jesus, the true riches of God come from those who live in the, the community, uh, who are the children of light, who experience God's love and mercy and grace in profound ways and share that with other people. And we get that great quote that we all know so well, right? No one can serve two masters cannot serve God and you like mammon? Mammon's easier than wealth to swallow, right? Uh, no? Yes? Yeah, it's, it's a softer word for us who, we're all wealthy, right? You all know that. Doesn't matter where, where you live. If you live here, you're wealthy. Worldwide comparison, all that kind of stuff. Um, the majority of the world lives on $2 a day or less. I mean, think about that. And we're going to think about that in a minute. Um, but if we can't serve God and wealth, uh, because we can't have two masters, that means we have to pick one. And just like God does with Moses, with the people of Israel today, I set before you life and death. I set before you prosperity. I set before you uh, love and community and family 
and I set before you death, destruction, dismemberment, failure, famine. Please choose life. It's your choice. What the people of Israel do? Choose death over and over and over again. So Luke, Luke's Jesus is doing the same thing. You can't have both. You've got to choose one. Please choose God. Please. God knows you need all those other things, but the kingdom of God, like that's what Jesus is about. Please. You can't serve God in wealth, so, so choose God, right? Pharisees don't like that. We don't like that. It makes us uncomfortable. So we get some hints about what we're to do with it, and then the, the third parable is going to be even more sort of convicting uh, for us in our plight. So the Pharisees who love money hear all this, and they ridicule Jesus. I like to think that um, that was an uncomfortable position <laughs> for people to sort of hear, like, wait a minute, if he's the Messiah, and these are our religious leaders... You know, to be in the middle of that, it's probably an uncomfortable position. And so he, Jesus, uh, turns on the Pharisees again. Uh, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. Uh, for what is prized by human beings is an abomination in the sight of God. Now, I want to I just take five seconds and talk about this. Um, because the word abomination is a harsh word. But I want to remind you all of all the things that are an abomination to God. Raise your hand if you've ever eaten shrimp or seafood. Put your hand down. Raise your hand if you've ever played football. Put your hand down. You have all committed an abomination to the Lord. Book of Leviticus. You shall not touch the skin of a damn animal. Football. Pork's not kosher. Neither that the word abomination is the same word used there. It's the same word used here. Uh, Jesus is speaking Aramaic. It gets translated in Greek for Luke. Uh, Hebrew uh, is the language in the Old Testament. So I want I want us to to be clear that it's a very harsh word and it's a very serious word. But we have a particular understanding of some of the things that were called an abomination in the Hebrew Bible that maybe we don't have such a. By the way, I've played football in the shrimp too. So I'm, I'm, yeah, all those things. Cheeseburgers. Bacon cheeseburgers, abomination to the world. So, I'm not trying to make light of what Jesus is doing here. I just want to make sure that when you hear that word abomination, and it's used in other contexts than you've heard in the Bible, uh, we have to be careful and remember all the ways that it's used. And uh, the pronouncement against wealth um, is the most common criticism of Jesus of the Pharisees um, than anything else, right? Um, the, The Bible says more about money than it does about just about any other topic. Uh, And so we're getting a lot of that today. And he comes and says, the law and the prophet were in place until John came, right? John's the transitional guy between the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. John's that last of the Hebrew prophets, um, sort of doing Elijah, Elisha kind of work in the wilderness. Jesus comes after him. And since then, the good news, the kingdom of God has actually come among you. A new way of living. A new reality. Uh, and we live in that, right? The already and the not yet. Jesus has come. Some of the stuff got fixed, but we're still waiting for Jesus to come and, and finalize everything. We live in that in between. Um, uh, and Jesus is going to want to make sure that you know that even though he's come and there's this new way of thinking, not one um, stroke of a letter of the law is dropped. N.T. Wright uh, translates that into not one dot of an I. It, this passage gets translated a lot of really interesting ways. It helps if you know Hebrew and Greek, but most of us don't. 
So um, uh, the NRSV translated, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter to pass away. And basically what Jesus is saying is, I've not come to overturn the law, I've come to fulfill it, right? And the law says this. So then we're gonna get this teaching about divorce, right? This is what the law says about divorce. And I'm telling you not to try to find a way around it. The law says, don't loan money to your neighbor with interest. That is an abomination, right? And so, fine, I won't loan you money, but I'll, I'll loan you 50 jugs of oil. And I'll chart, you owe me 100 back, right? That's how we get around that. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You're, you're violating the law itself. And you're violating the spirit of the law. And so we get this little comment on divorce. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Remember, uh, in another place, Jesus is going to say, um, you say, like Moses said, it's okay for a man to dismiss his wife with a decree of divorce. But I say to you, anyone, any man that looks at a woman with lust in his eyes committed adultery. Jesus is like reclaiming the law, the, the actual letter of the law, as he says here, not one letter will pass, and the spirit of the law. And he's challenging what the Pharisees are teaching because they're like, yeah, you can get divorced. It'll cost you $25. You just sign this paper, right? And we'll work it out. And Jesus, you're missing the whole point entirely, right? Now, uh, I have to be careful here because God does not want anyone to be in a relationship which is harmful or broken, right? And so um, the church today has a particular teaching about divorce that uh, someone who reads this passage might challenge the church. I think that's fair. Uh, but we also know that our God is, is merciful and just and compassionate and forgiveness happens and reconciliation can happen and all of those things. So those of you who have been through an experience of a, of a, a broken marriage, um, my mother is on her third marriage. So I've lived through two divorces. Um, God still loves her. And um, yes, so a little softening there. Any questions about the faithfulness with the dishonest wealth and the true riches? And yes, please. I have a question about 16. Verse 16. The law and the prophets were in effect until John came. I mean 18. Oh, sorry, 18. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits divorce. And whoever marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. What's your question? Can you? But you didn't clarify that for me. I did not clarify that for you. What Jesus is saying, uh, um, so... Uh, I'll talk about it a little bit more in, in a different term, and I still may not answer questions, so push back on me if I don't. Remember in the first century, and remember in Hebrew society, uh, that, that wives and children were considered property of men, right? That's bad. I think that's terrible. But that's how it was. So if you wanted to divorce your wife, then she had to go and kind of be off by her own, right? And that would happen if, if, a, if a wife displeased a husband. But it was also a, a property exchange, right? Are you, are you being faithful to the, the wealth, the, the riches that have been given to you? Are you squandering them? That kind of thing. The, the, I think maybe what you're asking is, uh, there's a man who divorces his wife and then marries another woman. And so he's committing adultery because technically he's still married to the first wife, right? And whoever marries a woman, so if I'm not married, but I marry a woman who's been married before, then I'm committing adultery because I'm marrying a woman who's still married to another man. That's the, the letter of the law from Torah. Um, that, uh, and we say this in our wedding, and what God has joined together, let no one put, put asunder. 
Uh, Paul talks about this. Uh, shall I lay uh, with a prostitute by no means because then I'm joining my body, you know, the body of the church with this kind of deal. Um, there's this, this concept of monogamy, which is tricky because it, it doesn't exist throughout the Bible, the whole Bible. It exists uh, here in the New Testament, and particularly when we think about marriage. Um, but remember, Solomon was married to 300 women, 600 concubines, right? So that's tricky. But Jesus goes back to the law, which says a man... If he marries a woman, must stay married to her, right? And the only, the only, the Pharisees come up with reasons why he can dismiss her. And Jesus is saying, no, you really can't do that. And so Jesus is going to call it adultery, not only when people are married, still married to other people are having relations, but when people who are married divorce, and then those people have relations, he's going to call that adultery as well. So what I'm saying is he's going back to the original intent, letter of the law and the spirit, and he's making it even more robust. Does that make sense? Still not got, I've still not got you there, have I? Does the Episcopal Church read that? No. So this was, yeah, I tried, yes, thank you. So the Episcopal Church, and I said this, I tried to, uh, we recognize that uh, some marriages don't work, um, that God does not desire anyone to be an abusive, neglectful, or hurtful relationship, and sometimes those covenant relationships we make need to be broken. So uh, there is a place for divorce. There's absolutely a place for people who have been divorced. Um, we don't reserve sacrament uh, for people who have been through that. Um, I think the Episcopal Church is uh, fundamentally uh, rooted in uh, this is the ideal, but we live in a fallen and broken world, and all things don't work out the way that we want to. And so, as I was saying, I, I am a child of two divorces. Um, that God doesn't want people to suffer, right, in, in relationships in perpetuity just because you've, you've made a commitment to somebody uh, and to God. Um, but uh, we do hope for reconciliation, uh, for peace. Now, I will say people will criticize the Episcopal Church and accuse us of being serial monogamists. So there are people who uh, in the Episcopal Church have been married three, four, five, six times. And that, that's kind of frowned upon a little bit culturally. Um, but it happens. And in the Episcopal Church, um, every diocese is a little bit different, but officially our canons say, um, if you've been married twice and you're trying to get married a third time and those uh, previous marriages did not end in the death of one partner, then you have to have a bishop sort of give you permission to be married in the church. Some of you may have experienced that or know something about that. Um, and so we find ways uh, maybe... We'll ask God to bless the marriage a year later or other things like that. So don't hear me say that what Luke is saying here, that Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, is what we do in the Episcopal Church. We, we've come a couple thousand years. We've, we know we're still in a fallen world. Um, I think that got what you needed, I think. Yes, ma'am. Would Jesus say that today? No, I don't think so at all. And that's why I think in the Episcopal Church we wouldn't say that either. If you're, if you're in a relationship that's abusive or neglectful or uh, your partner is uh, unfaithful, no, I don't, I don't think God wants us to stay in those relationships at all. And I think uh, religious leaders that tell people to stay in those relationships, um, not only are they wrong, I, I think they're, they're causing a lot of problems in the world. Um, I mean, this is true not only in, in Christendom, but in, in, in Islam and other places as well. Um, we've got a situation in our country right now where 
Our president has been accused of, of being unfaithful to his wife a number of times in the last few weeks. I'm not going to make this political. Um, but some of us might ask, why would you stay in that relationship if, if your partner is unfaithful to you? And then perhaps there are reasons that have to do with money that we're talking about. We don't know. I mean, I don't know the heart of anyone. But, I, but what I would say is in our Episcopal church, um, we look at the Bible and we say, yeah, we've got to take this marriage thing seriously. It's a covenant relationship. Uh, just like we're in a covenant relationship with God. We want that relationship to be healthy and whole. But if it's broken and wrong, if it's, if it's, uh, if it's damaging or abusive... Uh, please hear me say, we don't want people to be in that kind of relationship because that's not what God wants for us, right? God wants us to be in healthy and whole relationships. All right? All right, we got, this is a good conversation about marriage and divorce. Joan. So, uh, Joan's question is, uh, is Jesus really referring, is this passion, uh, passage about money or about marriage and promises are easy to make and hard to keep? Yes, I think so. Hold on to that. Let's do the last one. And this is, I'm excited about this because this one, you're going to hear something you've never heard before. We're going to do the last parable, the rich man of Lazarus. And then I think it'll all come together. I think. If it doesn't, we'll come back. So, as soon as he talks about this divorce and adultery bit, Jesus launches into another parable. doesn't say this is a parable. He just says, there's a rich man, right? How many of you all know the name of this rich man? Some of you do, because you went to Catholic school. Yeah? No? Dives. Yep. D-I-V-E-S, however you pronounce it. It's Latin for rich man, right? So some of you know that. Uh, or you read N.T. right. Either way, you knew it. Um, and so this guy, hello, oh, that's exciting. Um, this guy is super wealthy, and my battery's dead, so I'm going to take this off and yell at you. Sorry, recording. It's okay. Um, He's so wealthy that he feasts every day. Now, it's one thing for us to have Thanksgiving and Christmas once a year, and as Americans, we like to feast. Oh, that's great. We love it. But that's not a common cultural phenomenon in the first century. So this guy is so wealthy and so opulent that every day he has a feast, right? Um, thanks, thank Thanksgiving feast every day. So this is a big guy. He wears purple. Where do you get purple back from? Anybody know? First century? Well. Welts, good. Mollusks, yes. Some sort of, of uh, abomination, right? Sea creature, <laughs> sea, sea anemones. Uh, one of those things you're not supposed to eat. That's where purple light comes from. It signifies royalty. This guy thinks really highly of himself. Um, he's got a family. They're all pretty well off. Uh, perhaps this is the same first guy from the first story, right? The really wealthy man who has a mansion, perhaps. And so he's so wealthy... Um, but he just kind of stays in his house and, and feasts and doesn't really do any, anything. And outside of this gate, you know, down the edge of this property, there's a gate and there's this poor man whose name is Lazarus. Now, the name Lazarus is important because, not because of Mary and Martha's brother, Beth, Bethany, that Lazarus, Jesus raised from the dead, but who is Abraham's heir before... Before his sons are born. Before Ishmael is born. His servant, whose name is Eleazar, whose name is Lazarus. Abraham's heir, before he has his son, it has the same name. Why is that important? Well, when Lazarus dies, where does he go? He goes to the bosom of his father, Abraham. 
right? See, that's an interesting connection. Bible school, though, it's, it's really miraculous. And when they die, Lazarus uh, <laughs> goes up, and we, we do up and down, right? Heaven and hell. This isn't heaven and hell. This is a whole other thing. In the Hebrew Bible, when you die, where do you go? Sheol. And what is Sheol? It is not a place of suffering, of torture. It's not a place of reward. None of that exists in the Hebrew Bible, with two exceptions. One is in Isaiah, one's in Daniel. And Daniel is written much closer to the New Testament than the rest of the Old Testament is. When you die in Hebrew Bible, and I'll give you a good example of this, uh, you go to this place uh, of the dead, which is a place of rest. Um, there's this great story that we read never uh, called The Witch of Endor. Um, Saul is the king. God told him to banish all sorcerers, witchcraft, all that kind of stuff, but he doesn't. That's why Saul's bad king. Saul the first king, right? Um, Samuel was a prophet. Denounced a lot of stuff that Saul did. Uh, before he died, he anoints David to be the right king. Samuel dies, and Saul is kind of in a pickle, and so he goes to this witch of Endor. That's where the Ewoks live, for you Star Wars fans. It's a real place um, that uh, George Lucas used. Uh, and this witch calls the prophet Samuel up from Sheol, not from hell. Uh, she doesn't bring him back to life. He's dead. He's in this, his spirit's in this resting place called Sheol. And he's brought back. And he's kind of like, why are you bothering me? You know, kind of taking my rest. The concepts of heaven and hell, of Hades, uh, torment, all these lake of fire, all, uh, Gehenna, they come much later. They come from a Persian influence, from a Babylonian influence, uh, from the Greek influence. Hades is a, is a person, right, in Greek mythology. Um, a place, all those kinds of things. And so when we get to this story, um, you have to remember that uh, we're starting with a presupposition of, of Judaism, because Jesus is a Jew, that's been heavily influenced by these other religious groups. The Persians introduced this concept of, of light and dark constantly in battle with each other, right? Um, it doesn't really work with our Bible, because there's God, and maybe there's a Lucifer or Satan, but that's something that God made that, didn't, that broke, right? It's not that, like, there's two gods and they're fighting each other. The Persians kind of have this duality. Um, which creates a duality of spirit and matter that gets uh, into Christianity later. So the rich man dies, and he goes, and look, I want you to look at this. When he dies, the poor man died and is carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. And the rich man died and was buried. The poor man wasn't buried, by the way. Um, we don't get that. And Hades, when he was being tortured, he looked up, and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus at his side, right? And so then he's going to ask for mercy. Now, I'm going to read you something that most of you may probably not have heard of. And this is from the book of First Enoch. Anybody know who Enoch was? He never died. He was taken up into heaven like Elijah. He is Noah's great-grandfather. Noah's great-great-great-grandfather was Methuselah. Right? The longest person ever lived and died in the flood. Right? Right? But his great-grandfather is Enoch, who doesn't die, he's taken up into heaven. In the Ethiopian church, 1st Enoch is part of their Old Testament. It's just part of their Bible. Did you know that? Most people don't know that. 
So uh, it's just part of it's not a separate book. It's not apocryphal or any of that kind of stuff. It's just part of the Bible. You go to Ethiopia and you get a Bible. Right, there it is. I'm going to read you a little passage here. Um, Enoch is having a vision with Raphael, who's one of the... Just like Michael, right? How many are there? Four, seven, eh, depends on where you grew up. All right, good. Uh, at least four are named in our Bible. Tobit's my, uh, Raphael's my favorite. Show you one here in a second. Book of Tobit. So uh, Enoch is up there and he has his vision, and this is what happens. I'm just going to read you a few verses. From there I traveled to another place, and he showed me to a west and high mountain, hard rock, and there were four hollow places in it. I'm going to draw these. Deep and very smooth. One, two, three. I'm going to do a fourth one up here. Right? Three of them were dark. And one of them had a fountain of water in the middle of it. So this is a fountain. I am a terrible visual artist, but I work on it. All right. And he said, how smooth are these hollows and altogether deep and dark to view? And then Raphael answered me, one of the holy angels who was with me, said to me, these hollow places are intended for the spirits of the souls of the dead. They're all gathered into them. And for this very purpose, they were created. Uh, and all the souls of all human beings should be gathered. And look, here are the pits and places of their confinement. And thus they were made until the day on which they will be judged. And until the time of the day in which the great judgment they will be extracted from them. There I saw the spirit of a dead man making suit. He's making his case. And his lamentation went up to heaven and cried to make suit. I asked Raphael, the watcher and the holy one who was with him, uh, who is this? And he said, oh, this is the spirit from which Abel came, who Cain, his brother, killed him. Abel makes accusations against him until he perishes from the earth. And I asked about the hollow places and how they separated one from another. And he said, these three were made to separate the spirits of the dead. And this has been separated. Uh, this is a sign for them, etc. Why am I reading this to you? Well, here's the deal. First, he talks about four. And the fourth one is light and it has a pool in it. Now look here in verse 24. This is uh, Dias, the rich man. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, remember in life, you have all the good things, you have all the bad things. Besides all this, there's a great chasm between us and you that cannot be crossed. No one can cross over. And then he goes into his final pleading. Why I bring up First Enoch is this is the vision that's happening in Luke. Abraham and Lazarus are here in this cylindrical deal up on a mountain. Sheol is under, right? Sheol is down. But this is all up on a mountain. And this are these containers of the souls. So the rich man's here, and he's burning. He's tortured. It's hot. He this concept of hell. He's, and he, he can see Abraham. Somehow they can talk. Uh, but Father Abraham says this is a great chasm that cannot be crossed from one to the other. And basically everybody here is waiting for the final judgment. You see that? 
And it's different, but I think that's where it comes from. I'll just point that out to you to kind of show you that these concepts of, of heaven and hell, of, of Hades and Gehenna. Um, Gehenna is the place in Jerusalem where they burn the trash. It's a place of fire. It's a, a crevice of fire where they literally burn the trash. You can go to Jerusalem and you can go to Gehenna. Right? When Jesus talks about it, you'll be thrown into the lake of burning fire. It's a Gehenna. There it is. It's a physical place in the first century in Jerusalem. And this concept of, of Hades uh, is interesting. Uh, first, it goes back to the third century BCE. Um, so it's about the same time as Daniel. Um, maybe even older. Kind of the first reference um, to an extra Old Testament Hebrew Bible understanding of the afterlife as reward and punishment, other than everyone just going to shield. Another oh, point of the story, I just want to tell you where it comes from. The point of the story is the rich man had every opportunity on earth to distribute his money, like the shrewd manager, right? Like the father of the prodigal son, like the prodigal son even did. And he chose not to. He cho chose to hold it on to himself. Even though he had a guy at the end of the street begging who, who was poor, he didn't share anything. And the point is, we've talked about Jesus uh, upholding the law and the prophets. And look at the last couple lines. Basically, uh, send, go to my brothers, send, tell them this. And he says, even if someone were to rise from the dead, they would not repent. Said them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Now, Jesus knows that he's going to die and rise from the dead. And uh, there's an indictment here for all of us today who still don't understand the law and the prophets and that Jesus came to fulfill them. It would help if we read the law and the prophets. Most of us, I myself, need to work on that and remember them more and more. And remember that he came not to, to overturn them, uh, but to fulfill them. Um, and that all the work has already been done. We just need to pay attention to it. All right, so I'm going to pause there for questions and comments. We've been through the whole chapter. It's about money, right? It's about what we do with money. I think there's a clear indictment that we need to distribute the money. I think that's what God is calling us to do. Um, what do you all think? <coughs> No, this does not have to do with purgatory, but it's a great question. So, in the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, the concept of Sheol, everyone goes there. With a few exceptions. Enoch, Elijah, then and back. Moses, interestingly, when we get the New Testament, is also available to come back, right? Transfiguration, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah come, right? When we get to the intertestamental periods, remember uh, that... The whole world is kind of an upheaval, right? So the Hebrew people go into Babylon for exile. They come back. That's after the Assyrians. Then the Persians take out the Babylonians. Um, the Hebrew people get to return. Uh, the Persians are in charge. They kind of introduce this good and, and bad duality to the world. Then the Greeks, um, Alexander the Great, who's from Macedonia, comes, conquers the whole world, right? Brings with them all their mythology and all their gods, their concepts of heaven and hell, reward and punishment, Greek philosophy. Then the Romans come, they steal all the Greek gods, then they're the ones that are in charge during the day. So you're Jewish, you've grown up, there's only one God, but you're starting to see that maybe there is some of this dualistic stuff. We have these stories about fallen angels from 
First Enoch and some other places in the Hebrew Bible. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and we don't really, we're missing like 400 years of stuff there. You can read some of it in the Apocrypha, some of it in the Dead Sea Scrolls. But essentially, by the time of Jesus, we've got these concepts that are beginning to be developed about reward and punishment for the life you've lived. Um, and then Paul's going to take that on, and, and Paul's basically going to say, um, when Jesus comes back, everyone's going to get separated. Sheep and goats, right? Uh, children of light, children of dark. I want, Paul wants everybody to be on this side. Not meaning to sit in these pews, right? But Paul wants everybody to be on, on the side of Jesus, so everybody needs to go to heaven with Jesus. And if you're not on the side, that side, then you're going to be cast out into the other darkness. This concept is Martin Luther talks about uh, when we die. This is not a very pastoral response. Um, this is a theological uh, response to a question. What happens to us when we die? Do we go to sleep? Are our souls sleeping until the day of judgment? Do we, like the thief at the right hand of Jesus, or do we get to be with him that day in paradise? Um, do we go to a place of waiting like this? I don't like this, but it's there. Uh, and where our souls are kind of trapped in these little things um, until the time of judgment. We, we would hope we would go to the one with water. Right? Not these ones down here, these dark ones. Um, but these different concepts are developed. Purgatory is a concept that uh, the, Roman, the church is going to develop much later. Much later. It, it's not a biblical concept at all. Um, the Mormons are going to develop a concept of multiple levels of heaven. Which I take a very small verse from Paul in 2 Corinthians and sort of expand that. Um, and take some other Paul and tell women, you can get there too, but you've got to have right. It's not right. It's it, it does say something about that in Timothy, but it's not Paul. Um, but the church takes little things like that and creates bigger things. I'm glad I'm not being recorded anymore. All right. So, um, This is um, Hades, right? Um, if you know your Greek mythology, it's, it's like Sheol, but it is a place of torture. And, but there are some people in Hades who are in the nicer part. Nicer part. Yeah. It's a Greek, it's Greek idea. Questions, comments? Yes? What's the point of the story other than that? Yeah, I think... Um, I, if you're gonna if you're gonna read it uh, sort of literally, the point of the story is those of us who have a lot, if we don't share it, uh, we've already eaten our desserts, right? We've gotten our reward. Uh, the poor, blessed are the poor, they'll inherit the kingdom of heaven. I mean, Jesus says that uh, in Matthew. Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your reward. Jesus says that in Luke. I mean, we can read it that way. It's pretty hard for us Americans and Episcopalians to interpret it that way. What I'm what I'm suggesting is that we have a right and responsibility as inheritors of God's abundance to share that abundance with others. Uh, so here, here's my stewardship talk that you weren't expecting to get to it. Uh, imagine I've got two cups. And this is God. And with God's cup, there is an ever-flowing water into God's cup. Ever-flowing. It's God, right? Eternal, always... Abundance. What happens to the cup? Always flowing in. It overflows. Alright. We're made in the image of God, but if we're not in right relationship with God, right, it just washes off of us. 
us. God's abundance that overflows from God. God love, grace, mercy, uh, gifts, resources, all that stuff. If we're not in right relationship with God, we cannot receive God's abundance. If we are in a relationship with God, right relationship with God, we can receive God's gifts. But what happens? This cup's overflowing. What happens to this cup? Fills up, right? Now, once it's full, you can't, nothing else can go in there, right? So, if we're going to be in right relationship with God, we also have to be in right relationship with our neighbor, which means sharing the abundance. This always is going. It never runs out. This is God, right? If our cup is empty, it may be because we're not in right relationship with God. If our cup is full, it means we can't receive any new gifts or abundance from God unless we share out of our abundance with others. Now, if everybody does that, everybody's cup is full, right? You see, you do a billion cups down here. You all see the wine glass, the thing with the champagne. It's the same, right? Right? Now, we as Episcopalians are blessed because we're kind of on the third level, right? We, we're pretty, it's pretty easy for us to receive God's grace, gifts, abundance. There are other people, Lazarus at the gate, who can only receive those gifts if we are in right relationship with, with our neighbor. So I think that's the point of the story. Right? We have to love our neighbors like we love ourselves. That's the most important, you know, love the Lord your God and your neighbor. Jesus was pretty clear. That's it. How do we do that? When we share what we have with those around us. Right? So, as Wright talks about, you know, the person, the, home, the individual homeless person. And I think that there's a limitation to that. And I also think um, that um, he's right, and it's not primarily a moral tale about riches and poverty, um, and it is a criticism of the Pharisees. But I think for us, it's too easy for us to say, well, if I'm blessed and I help this one person a little bit, buy him a meal, get him a place to sleep for the night, or give him some clothes, then I've sort of done my thing. I think Jesus is talking about, in all of Luke chapter 16, uh, a distribution of God's abundance, right? That isn't limited to one person, but it is uh, unlimited. And my experience is when I share the abundance that God has given me, I get it back tenfold. In fact, if I don't share it, I can't receive. Just like those cups, right? If your cup is full, if you don't take the time to empty it out, you cannot receive the new gifts that God has in store for you. So brothers and sisters, hear me now. God has new and abundant gifts God wants to give you. You cannot receive them unless you give away the gifts you've already received. Right? Do you understand what I'm saying? You don't have to agree with me. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. You might like the gifts you have received already and you want to hold on to those Right? But there's a warning here. There's a warning here. Because if you don't give away the gifts that you've received, um, you know, that's what happened to the rich man, right? So I think that's I think that's what Jesus is trying to teach us in Luke 16. And um, I think they're all related uh, about remembering the law and the prophecy and Jesus has come to fulfill those and that the kingdom of God includes those. And they have to do with us as humans being in right relationship with God and with our neighbor. Any other questions? Oh, that was pretty good. Pretty good. A little conclusion. Anybody want to push back? Uh, well, I enjoyed being with you all today. Thank you for your patience with me. And-